Let's pray. Father, thank you for a beautiful day, the privilege to worship. I pray continue to give our hearts a desire to worship, a deepening desire, Lord, to worship you in all facets of our lives, but a special joy when we can gather and sing and praise and study. So now, Lord, open our hearts as we open the word, and may we be different because we've encountered you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're in a series called Risk and Redemption. And there will be no redemption without someone taking a risk. Jesus took that risk to be the ladder between heaven and earth, and he's calling us to follow in behind him. Now I want to ask you a question. Is there more evidence or less evidence today that a vegetarian lifestyle is advantageous? More or less? More. Most of you think more. Some of you might think less. Uh, Your credibility might be thought less of if you were to identify yourself. Uh, We're living in an age where what was once faith is now fact. I can remember as a boy when I became a vegetarian. I was about 13, 14 years old. My family was not living a vegetarian life, but my teacher had such a powerful influence on me, and the Spirit of God was operating, and I knew it was time for me to move. Now, I love all the things that I used to eat, but I don't love them enough to destroy the longevity as far as it's in my power to promote it, the clearness of mind, and I know the spirit of prophecy and the Bible are both pointing us towards that decision, but I can still remember when I told my neighbors, I think they thought I was from outer space. Even California wasn't living this way unless you were in the blue zones of Loma Linda. And I think people used to really believe that uh, you might wilt away into nothingness if you didn't have animal protein in your life. But you know, God moved on my heart. It was time for me to make that decision. And you know what? God honored me. My mother and my father were willing to do this, which meant more cooking for my mom. And my dad actually was willing to experiment, which for a man who made no profession of faith was a pretty big step, and I really do believe today there are two reasons my parents are in as good a health as they're in, in their late 70s. One is God blessing them for making the commitments to put their children's feet on the path of life, and two is a residual of good choices. And so in spite of 40 years of smoking, which they ceased several years ago, They have a measure of health that is really quite remarkable. And I'm absolutely convinced that part of it is that their vascular health was protected by a different kind of diet. And you can add many things to that. So why is it today that when we have more scientific evidence to show that the distinctions that were by faith are now not so faith-filled, why is it that we have less distinction as a people? We have other things we believe that are unique. Science will never corroborate with us to prove them. But they are still distinctions that ought to mark us. The chief distinction ought to be the love of Jesus that's in our heart, that flows out in our face, in our words, in our tone. But all the other things that mark us. The same prophetic messenger who showed us how to walk a different path in regards to smoking, flesh-eating, 
all kinds of other health-minded things, has other good advice for us, but science will never get in the game of proving spiritual benefit. Spiritual benefit will always have to be discovered. It will always have to be affirmed through obedience, which uh, Jim Berwald was talking about in our children's story. So this morning, I'm taking us on a journey into the third book of Daniel, the story of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I've entitled it, Stand and Deliver. Take your Bibles today, and let's see if we ought not to follow their example. Daniel chapter 3. Go past the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament and find this little book with 12 chapters. I want to talk about the need of acceptance while you're looking there. You know, God made us all to fit into families, and He meant for there to be harmony. The problem is the culture of our world has gone off in a wrong direction. What that means is, is that the culture that we're living in, the water we're swimming in, the air we're breathing, metaphorically or symbolically speaking, all of these things have an effect on us. You know, when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and he appealed to the people, if God be God, serve him, even though those prophets gathered there on that peak in northern Israel couldn't bring fire down, even though the Holy Spirit was out there convicting, all of those people in the crowd said nothing. They had been so immersed in the culture created by the queen and the king, Jezebel and Ahab, that their spiritual sense of vibrancy and freedom had long since evaporated, and they were left as spiritual weaklings waiting to be blown about in the wind. I'm convinced today that very same thing is going on. There is an absence because we're in a culture that's oppressive. It's a siege-like culture. There is an absence of spiritual strength. Now, before I talk about standing up, I, I want to affirm that we all need to be accepted. We need to be in communions that encourage us and support us. When I'm done preaching this sermon, it'll matter to me that the people that are important to me thought it was the message that was to be preached. In other words, when my wife says to me that she thought the Lord was using me and it was an important message and a good sermon, that means a whole lot more to me than most anybody else. When my son or my daughter says to me, Dad, that was a good message. Those things matter a lot to me. I appreciate your support and your encouragement, but my journey is one in which I am leading a large body on a wide spectrum of spiritual and relational maturity. Now, having said that, before we talk about three men who wouldn't do what the king wanted them to do, it's important that the church creates a counterculture to the culture of the world so that our kids know when they get in the circle of the extended family, they're going to find encouragement. They're going to find positive support. Now, healthy families have accountability moments too, but it's very important that the church creates a different culture. Now, I want to talk about postmodernism, but I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to hang on to that for just a moment. When the Bible says we're to gather together and all the more so as we see the day approaching, that's not just a casual statement by Paul. The Holy Spirit knew, giving him utterance, that natural human relationships at the end would get weaker and more distant. You can read that in his directions to Timothy about what society is going to look like at the end. Paul knew that coming together was going to form the fabric, the tight fabric, in which we would create countercultural environments that would provide support and nurture and acceptance. We need that from each other because without it, we will be reduced 
to being formed into the press of the culture, which is what Romans warns us not to do. Don't, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed through re- the renewing of your mind. So it's important for us to know as we look at these three Hebrew men that they had in some small facet an encouragement and support dynamic that we need to have too. Friends, don't look at the church like the supermarket where you're going to get what you want. And if it doesn't seem like it does anything for you, well, that just won't do for you then, will it? God's actually calling you to look at the church as a family and say, I will be supportive of it. I will be at these meetings. I will be in prayer. I will be financially supportive. I will give my time. So, so important. All right, let's jump into the Word. Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a big meeting. And the big meeting is going to be about loyalty and affirmation to his role. And his role is something we'll discuss. Chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the strangers, the, the satraps, I should say, the prefects and the governors, the counselors and the treasurers, the judges and the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. It was very simple. This image would be erected in the province of Babylon. There is a river that has the name Dura in it, but it is not in the province of Babylon. So this is certainly somewhere close to the centrality of governorship, of kingship, and of direction. And the collecting of people is quite extensive. They're leaders, and they are told simply when you hear the music, you need to bow down and worship. Of course, the image was about the kingship and about the godhood of Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 6 is very clear. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, verse 7, at the time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the fire, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now, let's just do a little brief interlude here. You know, most of modern Christendom has a doctrine of eternal burning hellfire. And for many, that's enough because it scares people into a relationship with God. And that's okay. The ends justifies the means because to be outside of a relationship with God is to diminish the quality of your life, the legitimacy of his lordship. But let's just for a moment understand what this would have been like. If I was a satrap or some other leader in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, I would have been told to bow down to this worship, to this image, and if I didn't, I was going to be thrown in a fiery furnace. Now, I really want to know for the intelligent thinking person, what level of real homage of mind, heart, or body is involved in that kind of act of worship? And yet, modern Christendom has embraced an ideology that is definitely diabolical. It's from the underworld. But they've embraced it in the name of the true God. Now, Seventh-day Adventists don't believe this. Seventh-day Adventists believe in the true power of choice, the ability to not be in the presence of God through all eternity, burning on uh, the divine rotisserie for the pleasure 
of the righteous, supposed. No, Seventh-day Adventists believe that God actually protects your choice to say, I don't want to live in God's universe. And when this life is over, I'm done. There's a recognition in it at some degree, not only of God's permission for us to say no to him, but also of the divine prerogative of God to actually create and in the end finish the work of dealing with sin. Modern Christendom has in the name of Christ adopted a methodology which is clearly from the dark side. And at the beginning of this story, I think we ought to understand that when you don't worship the way an oppressive power tells you, there has to be some kind of terrible coercion on the other side. But it's not really worship. And this morning, it's important that when you leave this place, you leave with a greater desire to willingly give your life to the Lord who is both creator and redeemer. Verse 8. For this reason, at what time or at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they brought charges against the Jews. They responded and they said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, live forever. You, O king, verse 10, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe and all kinds of musics to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. He got the memo. Verse 12. Now this is a very interesting verse. He's going he's gonna to critique and negatively so Nebuchadnezzar at the same time he critiques Nebuchadnezzar's men. There are certain Jews whom you have promoted. They're over the administration of the province of Babylon. It's not an ordinary promotion. It's a significant promotion. And their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, your choice, O king, have disregarded you. Bad choice, king. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image which you've set up. Now, there's a lot in that verse. The most important thing I want you to capture is this. Aside from the fact that their jealousy knows no bounds, so they're willing to ding the king if they can do it. I want you to see the latter part of the verse where they tell two offenses, one which should have explained the story before it happened, and the other they explained it in the now. They do not serve your gods. That's what should have let everybody know this isn't going to work good. Nor do they worship the golden image which you have set up. Could it be said of you and I clearly and distinctly in the places where we frequent that our life is uniquely peculiar, that our religion is uniquely wonderful, at least in the sense of our adherence to it, even if you don't value what we value? And could it simply be said, these people live a completely different kind of life? Nebuchadnezzar, you should have known. This wasn't going to work. You shouldn't have promoted them. They were aliens and prisoners. You put them up there, and now look what they're doing. Bad example 101. And here is Nebuchadnezzar sitting on his throne. He's creating a moment which is supposed to declare loyalty to him. And these men are unwilling to bow down. And everybody sort of knew, should have known, and now know. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, verse 13 gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego these, uh, before the king. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded, and he said to them, Is it true? Now, I'm going to hit the pause button right there. Do you remember in chapter number 2, which is, by the way, a story of an image? And yes, I'm not going to miss the broad strokes, 
This book is about the time of the end. These stories are about the time of the end. The issues in this chapter are about the time of the end. There will be false worship commanded at the time of the end of which failure to do so will lead to death. That's clearly a message of chapter 3. But this morning, I want to focus on being ready for the time of the end and ready for these moments. So I want us to think in in chapter 2. The wise men can't remember the dream, thus they can't interpret the dream. They basically say, could we have more time? Nebuchadnezzar says, no, the decree's now. You guys are going to die. Daniel asks for more time, and God gives it to him. It's interesting out of that narrative that a king who's not really interested in going out of his way to accommodate his subjects is willing to give a potential accommodation here to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is such a nobility and an impressiveness about their walk with God, he's actually going to question them. He knows the Chaldeans are worthless by way of character and would be glad to see these men gone. So he's going to give, him, uh, he's going to give these men a chance to speak for themselves. Is it true? Now the king, who is not known for his great patience and kindness when angered, says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? He doesn't really want an answer, it appears, before he rolls on with this rhetorical question of which he surmises it is true. Now, if you're ready, verse 13, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image I've made, very well. But if you do not worship you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And the challenge of the chapter is laid down in verse 15. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? There it is. The challenge is out. It's out there for them. It's out there for God. Now, the question has to be answered for you and me. What kind of problem do you have at the moment? It might be a personal problem. It might be a financial problem. It might be a problem in relationships. Is there a God who is about deliverance in your life? Or do you conveniently push his hands off the steering wheel of your choices and careen on and off, bouncing off the guardrails of life, making sure deliverance will happen inside your definitions of security, not God's? What God is there who can deliver? This is the question every apocalyptic 21st century Seventh-day Adventists better be asking themselves because the time is coming when we're going to face the same kinds of issues. And whether or not fire is the modality, it's been used before in the Protestant Reformation against the Reformation, and it will be used again if need be so to intimidate God's people. What kind of God is there? Is he real or is he fake? Is he orthodox and written down in 28 fundamental beliefs? Or is he that plus personal and powerful and Lord of all things? When's the last time we exercised spiritually by standing up? So many of us are sitting down. There's so much to be done, a world to be won. We're allowing our identities to be morphed into something they shouldn't be. God is actually calling us to a new spiritual exercise, and it's called standing up. And by the way, spiritual exercises matter. Giving is another spiritual exercise. I want to affirm this, church. Thank you so much for your courtesies to me and the pastoral staff during this month of pastoral appreciation. I can genuinely say it has been overwhelmingly positive and more maybe in one year than in a conglomerate of 30 years of ministry. 
So praise the Lord. But I want to ask you about your spiritual exercises. And in this moment, I want to talk about standing up. Now, you can't be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and not know what's going on on the plane. There are other statues like this that have been erected in antiquity, some of them even larger. And by the way, lest you be caught off guard if someone were to say to you, the proportions of this statue are not in keeping with the human form, don't be dismayed by this, friends. We don't know how much of the 60 cubits was base and how much of it, I mean pedestal, and how much of it was actually the form. And let there be no doubt, I'm quite confident, though can't be proved, that the image was an image of Nebuchadnezzar's number one man himself. And this is something that is probably important for us to recognize. God has people that have progressed through different challenges at different times, but those stories of faith are for us who will go through the anti-typical, which means it's no longer, it's no longer got symbolic uh, meaning for the future. It'll be the real, consummate, final deal. We're going to go through the anti-typical or the apocalyptic experience just like this. And if there's no God of deliverance in our lives, we'll be bowing down. And there are people whose real spiritual progress right now is on their knees, but it's not in prayer to God. It's in bowing down to the things of the world. And idols are erected in people's hearts and sometimes postured in people's homes or pockets or pocket books. And there is a bowing down. The Spirit of God is not free to do what the Spirit wants to do. Now I'm going to put a new twist on postmodernism. Postmodernism is God's exercise plan in anticipation of the final showdown. Everybody can do what they want, and you're being told in all the secular airwaves, you're not to say or do anything that rains on anybody's parade. Postmodernism is God's exercise plan in anticipation of the final showdown. But there are lots of Christians who aren't being who they're supposed to be. They're not standing for Christ as they should stand, and I don't mean in a stubborn, rebellious, or obstinate way. I don't mean this is me, like it or love it. No, I don't mean that at all. They have conscientious convictions that are born out of a humble dependence upon Christ. But postmodernism is the warm-up for the final showdown. If you don't think so, just get on the wrong side of the mass media who has imbibed and is, is promoting this new world order of culture like nobody else. You just get on the wrong side of the message of mass media and you find out how much objectivity there is in journalism. Postmodernism is the Christian's exercise plan to wake up and find God in the presence of the difficulties doing what you're supposed to do while you have freedom and privilege. Listen, this is America. We have this amazing secular document, probably the most ever produced, most inspired secular document ever produced. It's called the Constitution of the United States. If you can't stand up in this country where you've got laws protecting you, what makes you think you're going to be able to stand up when this country looks like every other country that's led by someone who has no system of checks or balances? Postmodernism is your training period. Ideas are moving back and forth. Society is being bent. But when Christians don't take their cue to be for God who they're supposed to be in the moment, in the now, they're actually teaching themselves how to be afraid, which is what I almost entitled the sermon. How to be afraid. How to make yourself afraid. 
So you don't want to lose that relationship? You don't want to lose that job? You don't want to lose that economic opportunity or that educational moment? All you have to do is to deny the principles of Scripture and the convictions of conscience. You don't, you don't really want to make any waves? All you have to do is say, Lord, I'm just going to stay in my seat when he's saying, no, it's time for you to stand up. Stand up and deliver the message of who you are, of who I am, of what I ask, of what you want to be. Postmodernism is the Christian warm-up to the final showdown. And when we're too afraid to be to the people that we love the most and we're closest to what we're supposed to be, we're just teaching ourselves how to be afraid. And I want to assure you, there's nothing more powerful than fear. Fear is the final crowbar that the devil's going to use to beat your fingers off the cross. And it won't take very much. The truth of the matter is, fear is the quintessential response of the carnal heart for self-preservation. Now, of course, some fear is good. Don't miss my point. Don't make me say more than I'm saying. But God is actually using this period of time for you to be you. But please, don't use the voice of somebody else to be who you are. Don't be looking to the political world or the educational world or somewhere else. Look to Christ. That's what these men did. But they had practice standing up. They stood up in chapter number one. And here they are in chapter number three. And let's do another important point for us. Some people are all Twitter-pated over Daniel's absence in chapter number three. Why is Daniel not there? Some suggest the king sent him on important errands. Some suggest that he was sick. Some suggest that he was so special his loyalty wasn't doubted. All of those are worthless suggestions. Daniel is not there because God has chosen to not have Daniel there. This is a story of three men who are going to get their own experience with God outside of the shadow of the author of the book. And you know, no matter where your journey is and how many wonderful mentors you've had, there always comes a graduation moment where it's your turn to put your face into the wind and your hand into the unseen hand of Jesus. Daniel was not destined to be on the plain of Dura. Daniel is not needed on the plain of Dura, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are moving forward in their own experience, writing their own faith chapters. It's fine for you to come and listen to a message. It's fine for you to read a book. But when it's all said and done, you need to write the volume of your own faith in Christ, and you do it by following his gentle prompts. And the journey is to learn to hear better all the time and follow as Abraham followed and hear that voice behind you saying, walk ye in it. And by the way, friends, when it comes to conformity, which we live in an age of conformity, our identity is in conformity. Listen, if you conform, the world will leave you alone. They will. The only problem is, is that when you're alone, you won't like being with yourself. God calling us to learn how to be alone with Him so that when we have some spiritual exercise and we're to stand and deliver, we have the confidence because we've been here before. There's nothing about this except the, the intensity of what's happening that's changed. And by the way, God is very wise and patient. He, he graduates or develops your strength in relationship to a properly calibrated test our opportunity. God is calling us in all of our ordinary relationships. Now, this was an interesting week for me. 
I think I, I handed out more apologies to people this week than I have in a long time. And I'm all right with apologizing. I don't like being wrong, but uh, I am. But in the midst of all of those apologies, there were some fierce conversations. And there's different people here listening right now to whom my apologies were given. To one of them I said, I'll, I'll make it proper for the service so it'll be close to what I said. I'm not sorry for the strength of my convictions on this subject matter. I'm sorry for the strength of how I came across. To another person of, with whom I had a, a much fiercer conversation, I don't know that I'd call that one even fierce, that person offered me an apology, which I'm not sure was needed. When you're in the midst of a real relationship, you're going to get all the practice you need Today, whatever today needs to offer you, you'll get all the practice you need for what I'm talking about. It's in the ordinary places where God actually starts doing what prepares you for the extraordinary places. In other words, every relationship you have will at some point in time afford you an opportunity to stand and deliver. And when you're in a fierce conversation, by the way, let's just put a little practical note on things. There's nothing wrong with deep passion for a belief system. But when your belief system blurs over to nastiness and ugliness towards a person, you now have something called an identity idea. It's no longer truth. You've got something that's tied to your identity, and somebody's making you a tad bit fragile in regards to this dialogue. And Abusers are good at this. You wouldn't want to be an abuser. Abusers are good at scaring and intimidating people away from uncomfortable conversations. And when somebody has to be rude and inappropriate in the passionate defense of their idea, they now have an identity idea. In other words, the idea is so tied to who they are that if you dismantle it, you're undoing them. Now let's take an identity idea out of the story. Who had an identity idea in this story? Nebuchadnezzar. And what was his identity? I'm God. You know the problem with the story? Bad ideas are always hard to defend. Wrong ideas make you discomfortable. Before Nebuchadnezzar got out onto the plain of Dura in his throne, carried by his cadre of... Uh, Courtiers, he already knew that he was not God. So have your passionate discussions, have your fierce conversations, but as soon as they turn mean and nasty, you're in error. At least error of spirit and probably error of idea because a true idea doesn't need your defense. God will defend it in time himself in the quietness of a person's, an honest person's willingness to hear. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down, oh, he makes them mad. The fourth Bible commentary in our SDA Bible commentary set, by the way, all of you should have one, spend less money on a phone, or get it in the software form and have a set of the commentaries or one of the new Andrews commentaries that has come out or is coming out. You should have these things 
In that Bible commentary, it suggests that his visage was demonic. And I wouldn't be one bit surprised if you spend all those years and all that money setting up that statue. And now everybody's supposed to bow down and you can smell the smoke and maybe feel the fire. I don't know. And you won't do what he says. What do you have left to do to somebody who's not afraid to die? You got to get angry. So heat it up seven times hotter. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar knows before he goes out there, there's a true God in heaven. Daniel has proclaimed it. But these men have to have their own encounter. And as one of our members from first service pointed out to me this morning, Daniel had the vision of the, of the image. Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego had certainly prayed with him and prayed for deliverance. But it was a vision given to Daniel. Now, this is an experience given to them. And by the way, friends, it's a glorious experience of deliverance. Let's keep going. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, who had wondered who could deliver them, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand. O king, but even if he does not, let it be known that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Nothing's changed. You knew before we got out here this wasn't going to work. It's not working. And if it doesn't work and we're gone, it's it. But this is who we are. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is in the living God. Now, I want to take a few moments because verse 16, 17, and 18 are pretty important. When you come down to the phraseology there, I'm reading from the New American Standard, it says, if it be so. In other words, if you've got the power to throw us in the furnace and it's just done, okay. But our God does have the ability, if it be so. There are some scholars who suggest that how that really ought to read is that if our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, good. But there's a big difference between if it be so, comma, our God whom we serve is able. But for a lot of people listening to me here this morning, it ought to read like the critical scholars suggest. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. The confidence that he can if he wants to is missing. And maybe it's because there aren't any chapters where we've kept track of his deliverance, his provision. But I really like how the Septuagint does it, which was the Greek Bible that Paul used that was written by the Uh, Hebrew scholars in Egypt, 70 of them. That's why you often see it in writing as the LXX. It's the 70 scholars. And listen to this. It's even better. O king, now this will be verses 16 to 18. O king, we have no need to answer thee concerning this matter. For God, the God in the heavens, is our Lord, whom we fear, and who is able to deliver us out of the furnace of fire, out of your hands. O king, he will deliver us, And then it shall be manifest to thee that we will not serve neither this idol nor worship thy golden image. Friends, what is it for you and me? How confident are we? If we haven't been in the habit of standing where we need to stand, and instead we're bowing down to the world in ways that are reshaping our identity, we could come up to the last crisis and be all afraid. 
Do you really think God wants us to be afraid? Do you know what fear is? It's a leech on our spiritual and emotional vitality. It's a leech on our resources. Fear is the devil's way of draining the energy and emotion out of God's people at the very end so they can do what needs to be done so everybody can know there's a God in heaven who's able to deliver because this world's going to be in deep trouble and the storyline of hope and salvation is going to be over. This is a chapter written specifically for you and me. But the king doesn't like it. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Listen to the snap, crackle, and pop. Watch the black smoke billow out of the top of this clay oven. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and don't be too gentle, in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. And then these men were tied up, their trousers, their coats, their caps, their other clothes, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And for this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, The people on the outside of the fire died while the people who went into the fire lived. Can God turn the elements around if he wants to? At what point in time did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sense that the perspiration and the red skin on the faces of these valiant warriors was concerning to them, but they didn't even feel hot? Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded, and he stood up in haste, and he said to his officials, was it not three we cast into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods or like the son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Now, could we be real for a minute? Imagine if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you're Daniel, and you're all in a prayer session, and you're saying, Lord, you know our very lives depend on this dream being interpreted to us, this dream being revealed. Now, I, I don't want to be too petty and too human. I don't, want to be, I don't want to make you like me. But since we're all human beings, there's some part of you that's like me. And, and I just wonder if in our security, when the four of them prayed, but only one of them got the vision, if the rest of them didn't wonder, well, Lord, why didn't you talk to me? But I want to tell you something. A vision in the night can't compare with a walk with Jesus in the fire. And what you don't get now because somebody else gets it, don't worry, rejoice and be glad that God had a point of communication. Don't compare your spiritual walk to somebody else's because yours appears to be a little bit different or a little bit less direct. This is far more direct than most people in the Old Testament scriptures ever got to encounter. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus is going to walk with his people at the end of time, and he's going to deliver them. That's what Revelation, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says. Now, there were ten plagues. Three of them fell on Goshen as well as on Egypt. And there will be a period of time in which there is some intense suffering. 
But once those seven last plagues start, the main battle for us is a battle of faith and trust in God. Those plagues aren't for us. Our bread and water will be sure. But if we're not learning to hide under the wings of the Almighty, if we haven't learned that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we need not fear, though the mountains be carried into the heart of the sea. Friends, some of the things we're going to watch are going to make our hearts wonder. But God never intended that we look at the future with fear. This God's alive. This God's present. This God does what no other God can do. But what if they would have bowed down? What if they would have walked home that day glad to be alive, but not glad for much of anything else? Certainly not wanting to run into Daniel. How many years it took to build this thing, we don't know. But I'm here to tell you, they were high up in the kingdom. They knew what was going on, and they did not live their days in anticipation of fear and dread. Trouble's coming, trouble's coming, trouble's coming. What miserable men they would have been if for the years it took to erect an image probably 100 feet tall. By the way, I've been to India three times, and I've seen their famous monkey god statue. It's pretty impressive to be in the presence of something physically that big that's an idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no question as to what that image was being created for. Nebuchadnezzar is more into himself than maybe anybody else in all of Scripture. And they weren't nobodies on the edges of the periphery of the kingdom. They knew there was a day coming when they were going to have to stand up, and they did not live all their days in fear. To suggest that they didn't battle some fear and wonder about it. But friends, they got down on their knees and they reached up to heaven. And the God of heaven came down and gave them a divine comfort that when you walk through the waters, I'll be with you and the fire won't burn you. These were things the prophet had said. We better acquaint ourselves with what the prophets have said so that we can claim the promises and have the assurance that God will be with us. There are too many Seventh-day Adventists who are in love with the world and afraid of the future, and it's a perfect whirlpool for sucking the hopes of the world down the tubes. Because if these men wouldn't have stood up, by the way, look what happens. Everybody goes from saying, wow, what an awesome statue, to everybody gathering around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, wow, what awesome men. Can I smell your clothes? All the attention is turned from the idol to the true God. Can you say amen? amen? This is an amazing story. But it gets better than that. It's not just that all those satraps and prefects and all those other governmental people are going to go home and tell the story. No, Nebuchadnezzar is going to do it up better. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own, which should make us think of the book of Revelation where it says they love not their lives to the death. Therefore, I make a decree. Now, I want to know, how many people were to hear this decree? You think about it. I make a decree that any people, nation, tongue, that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there's no other God who's able to deliver this way. And they get another promotion 
out of it again. It didn't turn out too bad. If you can face your fears in the name of God, it'll be better on the other side. But if you can't face your fears facing the future, it will reduce you to an unbeliever. Friends, this story is written down. This church, you, God's people, are not to be afraid. Easier said than done. But with your standing in the shadow of the shepherd, it's a given. God cares for his own more than you care for your children, more than you care for your spouse, more than you care for the people that you love. God takes their witness and he tells the whole world the nation has imploded with a love of Babylon. They were conquered in their hearts before they were challenged in their bodies. And there's only a few that go back to Babylon that remain faithful to God. But look what God does. Jerusalem falls. Israel fails. But in the heart of heathendom, three men stand up and everybody knows what the Jews should have been doing for centuries. There is a living God. Hallelujah. Amen. This is where the story goes. So, let's end it. You got your Bible open there? I want to show you something. Verse 15. I want you to see a word in this verse over and over again. Verse 15. Let's come down to his question. Bottom part of the verse. What God is there who can what? Deliver. Verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to what? From the furnace of the blazing fire. And he will what? Deliver. Go over to verse 28. We come down to the middle of the verse now, Nebuchadnezzar is talking about the fact that this God delivered. And we go down to his decree, and there at the end of his decree, almost to the end, is the word, deliver. Listen, friends. Maybe the thing we need, need delivered from the most is our fear that he's not a good God. And he's creating a situation we can't endure. Maybe today's situation needs to be redirected to re, reconstitute the culture of the church and the culture of the world. Polarization is the name of the game right now, isn't it? Jesus said, leave the wheat and the tares growing together. Well, friends, the harvest is almost ripe. But you know what's going to ripen it? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit and persecution. The Spirit's going to be poured out. Our love will be enlivened and deepened. Our faith will be increased as God reveals thus things to us through the Word. There is a preparatory work. That preparatory work is sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's studying His Word. And it's also serving Him openly with some spiritual exercise. They stood, and they delivered a message they had been delivering every day of their lives. I belong to God. Praise God. You belong to God. I belong to God. I'm not an accident. I'm not an interruption. I'm not a brief interlude in the flow of cosmic time. I'm a child chosen and redeemed. I won't be forgotten. He's engraving me on the palm of his hands. He's promised to deliver me from temptation and sometimes physical harm. 
And I'm supposed to stand up and deliver a message to the world so they could meet him too. So sell what you don't need that's been a false sense of assurance and give to this cause and commit yourself to each other and to a lost world and know the joy of a counterculture where we actually bond as a foretaste of heaven and be at work and be at home and be in marriage and be as a parent and be at school and be at the health club. All the things you're supposed to be. But don't let this world confuse you or conform you into its image because then the world will be robbed and so will you. Faith-building chapters for you and hope and faith in a Savior who has a different plan so many people don't know. That's our privilege. I don't know. I have some money in a 401k. At what point in time? I mean, I don't want to be destitute in my retirement. I know at some point in time, God's going to say to me, your retirement's in heaven. Just know this. When you stand and deliver, be humble, be sweet, be beautiful. If you're wrong, say you're sorry. If you're right, don't back up. Show respect. Deliver a message of who you are in Christ. And know this. If it gets you in trouble, you won't be the first. You won't be the last. And there is a deliverer. His name is Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.